Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Changes. It's me, Annie McManus. Hope you're doing well. I'm really excited to bring you today's conversation. As you know well, with this podcast, it's not all about speaking to people in the public eye. We like to zoom in on stories of remarkable change. And through doing this podcast, I've learned and managed to explore all the different types and facets of change that can affect a human being. For this week's guest, there's a Joan Didion quote that sums up her experience perfectly. It goes, life changes in the instant the ordinary instant. That's what happened to Grace Spence Green. She's experienced enough change to fill a lifetime and she's only in her mid-twenties. Grace is outrageously smart, passionate, impressive. She's a junior doctor, an activist, even an occasional podcast host. In October of 2018, Grace was walking through the atrium of Westfield Shopping Centre in London. At the very same instance, a man three stories above her jumped from one of the internal balconies. He was trying to take his own life. Instead, he landed headfirst on Grace, breaking her back, fracturing her neck and injuring her spinal cord. She was paralysed from the chest down. For Grace, there were huge instantaneous changes that came with an injury like hers. But the biggest changes that Grace went through came a long time after her injury, and some of them are still happening now. They have to do with acceptance, autonomy, community, adventure, all of these things that Grace wasn't sure she'd ever feel again when she first woke up and began to understand what had happened to her. And that's where we started our conversation, with the incident itself and how Grace remembers it now. I was obviously concerned that talking about all this might be difficult for her, so I asked her if we were okay to go there, and her answer surprised me. Enter the podcast, Grace Spence Green. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I'm I'm absolutely fine. I think people think I have quite a lot of trauma associated with the actual day, the event. Yeah. But really, I think the trauma I have is associated with being in hospital for three months and feeling like I have no dignity or autonomy. The actual day itself doesn't really, um, yeah, I'm very happy, open to talking about it, um, definitely. Okay, well, thank you. If you can start with giving us a bit of context. So how old were you? What was going on in your life around this time? So I was 22. I was at medical school, but I had just taken a year out to do a master's at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And I'd done my dissertation in Palestine and I'd spent like six weeks there traveling and climbing. And it was just like amazing adventure. And it was the first trip I'd been on on my own. So I kind of left that feeling really strong and confident in myself and thinking, well, if I did that, I can, you know, go on to do do more adventures. Um, so I came back from that. And then uh, two months later, I was living in Maidstone because I was doing a placement because I was back in medical school in fourth year, uh, doing a placement there. And yeah, feeling really excited about nearly finishing medical school and like living with some of my best friends. It was, it was a really happy time. Mm. And then uh, I was just about finishing that placement 
and um, I was going to go back to London because I had coached kids climbing uh, most weeks in London. So my friend said that she could drop me off in um, Westfield because she wanted to go shopping. So I said, that's fine because I can get the tube from there. Right. Um, so I remember we went down from the car park down to the kind of the main atrium. I remember we said goodbye at the escalators. She went up, up the escalators and it felt like I'd only walked for a couple of seconds before I just suddenly woke up. And that was such a bizarre feeling because I hadn't been asleep. And Westfield's a very kind of brightly lit, super white place. So I remember yeah. looking up and kind of seeing this bright white light, like I was in heaven or something strange. And it was so bizarre. And then my second thought was, oh my God, I can't feel my legs. And I kind of remember screaming that, but it, it felt like I wasn't, um, it was someone else screaming almost. Yeah. And there were lots of people around me at this time, because I think I had been unconscious for about seven minutes. And I remember people around me telling telling me that I had been hit and that um, that's why I was lying on the floor and I could sense that there was someone nearby that was also lying on the floor and they, he had a crowd of people around him telling him that he'd, he'd fallen from a height so very early on I could sort of understand what had happened but it was only kind of a couple of weeks later when I was transferred to the Royal London that I was kind of told that a man had jumped from the third floor and landed on my back head first. So I sustained a spinal cord injury. And so I'm paralyzed from sort of the chest down and I'm now a full-time wheelchair user. Wow. Wow. Um, okay, so what happened next? As in, you, you were brought to hospital, you talk about a few weeks later, but can you remember much about that time between that moment, that instant and it kicking in and the realisation dawning of you of, of, of actually what happened, that kind of gaining that understanding. Yeah, so I, I think it took me a while. And I, I actually uh, started writing a diary about five days after I was in hospital. And Brilliant. That's really kind of bizarre to look back on because I, the headspace I was in was so surreal because um, I was, you know, I was just a medical student and suddenly I'm on the other side of the bed and I'm a patient. And I think there was a lot of denial I think for a couple of weeks I didn't really understand what was happening um I didn't connect to my body at all because it, it looked the same but it felt completely different so it took me a long time to process any any thoughts and then when I was transferred to Stanmore which is kind of a rehabilitation center right um where they kind of spent 10 weeks and they kind of teach you how to live life again with a spinal cord injury even then, for a long time, I felt like, oh, I'm like, I'm not meant to be here. I, I don't belong with these people. This is, mm. I'm not disabled. I'm not a wheelchair user. They've, they've made a terrible mistake. So it's very interesting to look back on that diary and see how, yeah, how much denial I, I had to go through before kind of acceptance. And was there a moment where you did accept? Definitely. And I think it's interesting because when I tell my story, everyone says, oh my goodness, yeah, your life changed in a second. And I really don't see it like that because right. I feel like something happened to me, but my life changed two years later when I feel like I took control of my own diagnosis and I kind of felt really empowered and I call it radical acceptance because it's kind of this, the, the radical notion to just exist as I am is is enough. Um, and that took me, yeah, years. And I think it it was quite a slow process. So for a while, I started reading lots of books by disabled authors. I started connecting with disabled people online. I started, yeah, reaching out to the disabled community and seeing people do kind of 
have careers and families and do really interesting things with their lives. Um, so that took, it took a long time. And I think after kind of reading all those things and at the same time, I was still going to physiotherapy and trying to learn to walk again, because that's what I was told I was meant to be doing with my life now. And that's mm. kind of, that was my goal. And um, I think there was this other realization while I was seeing all these disabled people doing great things, I was also thinking, who, well, who am I, what am I doing this for? All this physiotherapy hours spent trying to kind of connect yeah. with these legs and I'd get some movement, but it wouldn't be useful at all. So that was a big realization that I didn't feel like I was doing it for myself. I thought I was doing it to look less disabled and kind of fit in with society better. Um, so I think it's when I took control of my own identity and realized that actually I'm very happy as I am as a wheelchair user and kind of felt really part of the community. That was that was the a kind of a key turning point. Mm. And it took a while. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah. And and how long would you say from the day when you went to Westfield to that point happening? Was it years or? Yeah, I'd say it was two years. And I feel like I'm still recovering. I look back sure. uh, six months ago and I think. I barely recognize that person almost because wow. I feel like I've come so far still. I think recovery from a spinal cord injury is a, a lifelong process, to be honest. But I think while I was kind of embracing who I who I now was, I think my relationship with anger was also something that was really changing. I think I was never angry at kind of the man that jumped or that situation. I didn't connect with that anger at all. And a lot of people wanted me to feel really angry about that and have some of these emotions, but I didn't, I didn't feel that. Um, what I felt angry about was just when I got out of hospital and I was discharged, how I was treated as a wheelchair user was just horrific. Right. I right. felt like a second-class citizen, like the mm. comments I'd get, the intrusive questions from strangers, the not being invited somewhere because it wasn't accessible. And I think for a long time, I internalized all of this. I internalized people's discomfort, clear discomfort with me. Uh, mm. It's like it was my issue. Mm. And I think I just started getting really angry, but it felt like good anger. It felt kind of warm and it felt like productive and it felt like I could do something with this anger. And that's when I started just not putting up with it. And it was, oh, it was such a wonderful feeling. <laughs> was there a, a thing that happened? Can you remember like an exchange or a day when it was like, oh, I've had enough? Yeah, that's a good question. There was something I remember really specifically because I'd had a, a therapist who was also a wheelchair user at this point and we were kind of going through this anger and that was really helpful. That's really been kind of my lifeline. That's been unbelievable to have someone that I can look up to and that kind of completely understands me. And that's the beauty mm. of being in a community that I have, I feel like I have a connection with most disabled people I meet. Yeah. Um, so we were kind of talking about my relationship with anger and I was starting to become a bit braver about thinking, well, I'm not going to answer your question, this random stranger saying what's wrong with you, or I'm not going to take that comment actually. But I think there was one moment where I remember I was still at medical school in final year and I was a bit late to a class and but everyone was still standing outside and the kind of leader of the class the teacher was on the phone and complaining that it hadn't started yet and it was person on the, the phone's fault and then she saw me and she said and there's a lady in a wheelchair here and I thought wow <laughs> I just it was a small comment but I got so I was furious and I remember we went into the classroom and she was still really flustered and kind of running around. And I kept kind of saying, you didn't need to point me out like that. Everyone else is waiting. That's not really acceptable. Mm. And she she couldn't 
she was, I don't know, she was fussing around and I could see, it just suddenly kind of dawned on me that she was so uncomfortable. I was yeah. making her uncomfortable. Mm. And in that moment, I felt really powerful. I was just sitting there, I wasn't doing anything. And I felt so powerful that I was kind of creating this emotion in this woman. And then we had a, a break in the class and I remember she came up to me and she said, look, I'm, I'm really sorry about that. You know, I was, I was stressed, I'm really sorry. And the old me, kind of pre-injury, I feel like <laughs> I have kind of a need for people to like me and it's quite, it's almost pathological. So I, mm. I usually would be like, oh, don't worry about it. It's fine, don't worry. Like I instantly need to ease their, their worries or their discomfort. But instead I just kind of sat there. I just sat in it and I just said, okay. And that one word was just, so unbelievably empowering so I still think about that and it's so small but it that felt like a big turning point because from then I'm so much better at just sitting in other people's discomfort right. and just kind of almost reveling in it and thinking yeah. I don't need to do anything about this I can yeah. this is on them actually they're projecting yeah. it onto me but I it's not my responsibility so yeah I think I think that was the one moment mm-hmm. so I'm interested in obviously other people's reactions to to you now but also to the accident itself because I, I I've heard you or read about you talking about that just people's visceral anger and prejudice and assumptions about how you felt and how things played out what did people think and what did people say to you about that day I remember when I was still in hospital I was I'm trying to process what happened but at right. the same time I am getting nurses strangers friends family friends tell me oh my god I would have killed him or I I, that is so that is awful he should go to prison I'm so angry for you and it was actually it was really overwhelming to have this kind of collective anger on my behalf when I didn't feel any at all Mm. and that was really difficult when I was trying to understand how I felt and I'm having people around me say Oh, I would have done this and I would have done that. And I just thought you have absolutely no idea what you would have done no. in this situation because you're not in it. So that was really, that was really tricky. Um, I really struggled with that. And that's why I I feel like I've become quite selective of who I share my story with. Mm. And I, the need to kind of control my own dialogue is so important because yeah. I felt like when I was in hospital, I was a victim and he was the perpetrator and everyone would probably be talking about it. And there was tabloid articles out that, you know, were painting this picture of us, you know, and I hated that. I really hated that. So I think since then, I've been really passionate about, yeah, being in platforms that I'm able to tell my story, um, mm. you know, myself. Um, yeah, no, it was, it was difficult. And I felt like I was kind of almost waiting for my anger to come because I thought, well, everyone else is so angry around me. Surely... Surely my my right. emotion will come soon or something, but it, it never arrived, and I don't think it will because I don't I don't see it how other people seem to see it. And did you figure out how you felt about the man? Yeah, yeah, I did, and quite early on, I think to be honest, looking back at my diary, I feel like I right. see glimmers of it. You know, a week a week after, I feel like I I found it really useful to be quite practical about the situation. So. Um, right thinking about well if I wasn't there and he was jumping head first he probably would have died so I wouldn't you know I wouldn't take back my injury and someone 
you know, would have died at that, you know. So thinking about it like that, I felt like, well, obviously I would take this injury and I wouldn't take it back. So Mm. I have to, you know, just move forward. And to me, I think maybe because it's such a random event, it just felt like we were two people that bumped into each other at Westfield and went on different kind of courses. Like, I don't know, the tracks of my life changed and that's that's what happened. Um, Mm. So, I, I, yeah, I think that's how I see it. Um, I think the randomness of the event maybe helps in a way. Yeah. It just, it just felt like kind of two particles colliding and then going off in separate directions. Yeah. And did that happen? So you both went off. There was no contact. There's nothing after it happened. No, no. And that's mm. another thing. I know I people really... presume that you guys should be writing letters to each other or something by now. Yeah, yeah. That's the other thing I find really difficult is people suddenly, when I tell my story, they say, Oh, what happened to him then? Are you talking to him? Are you? Do- mm. And I think oh, this is not about. This is me. I'm talking, and it's difficult. And I think some people also think of kind of assume that I will have had to do like a restorative justice, almost like we have a, a meeting and then I forgive him, and there's you know something like that, which I guess you they've seen on TV and things. Yeah. But there was no anger to begin with, so there's no forgiveness there. Yeah. And I think because I reject this victim image so much, I really hate the idea that I've forgiven him because he's done mm. something to me because I don't see it like that at all. There wasn't any anger. There wasn't me feeling like a victim. Um, yeah. Mm. I guess I, I didn't mean in terms of you forgiving him. It was just more more contact of any sort, you know, because it's such a random situation and you guys, your lives have been kind of entwined in such a unique way. I don't know. I thought maybe it could have happened but it didn't and I understand why I really do and I was thinking Grace as well about like when something so extreme like that happens to you just just that your own body changing the physicality is enough but then having this whole extra layer of someone else's motivations and choices and you know their own trauma literally and figuratively on top of you it's I can't imagine how difficult that must have been to navigate yeah, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I think that's why three years on, I think I'm still processing things. Yeah. Kind of finding new, picking up on new emotions that I kind of might have had to ignore, or, you know. And it felt like a long time after my injury, I think my brain was almost protecting me from all of this. So sure. it's yeah. it's taken me lots of time to unpick all the different layers. And I'm, I think I'm still going down that onion. <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So you're a medical student, you're a practicing doctor now, right? Yes. I'm very interested in your perspective on hospitals and the patient-doctor relationship, all of that post your accident. 
Yeah, I mean, I say that those three months were the the best placement I could have had as a medical student, the best education, um, because I was so shocked by how little kind of dignity and autonomy and kind of control over my own situation I had. I felt like a lot of the conversations about my care were happening at the end of the bed without me. And then in Stanmore, I felt like a lot of the time, like for example, our wheelchairs were moved um, in the night to the corridor to kind of free up space on the ward. Right. And just that kind of signified to me the complete lack of kind of respect for our autonomy. Yeah. It's obviously we're not going to be going anywhere. So I'm now stuck in this bed for the next 10 hours until they choose to mm. let me kind of move around again. So it was things like that that really shocked me. And I think as a medical student, I was probably quite naive to patient experience I hadn't really been an inpatient before Mm. so yeah that really shocked me and I think I'm now really passionate about yeah particularly dignity and kind of patients having some small control over their lives is so important and it's little things like um if I say I'm coming back to tell a patient something or give them something I I know I have to because I know how important that was to me when I was a patient and how like Mm. I clung to that and how I might have had to wait six hours but if they came back I'd that was yeah really important to me Mm. what do you think is the biggest change you've been through in terms of how you look at the world now that you are a wheelchair user I I think I think yeah I think it was a real shock when I got out to suddenly realize I think I'd probably well I'd been privileged enough to ignore it I think really pre-injury So I think a big shock, to be honest, was personally, I had to really challenge my own views of disabled people when I was injured and kind of unpick 22 years of internalized ableism I had from what I'd seen on TV and what I'd seen in patients or et cetera. Mm. So I was quite difficult. It was uncomfortable kind of looking at myself critically, but that was really important because once I'd kind of recognized some of the biases I had it, I could actually sort of break them down yeah, and I think I think I've really my relation, my kind of ideas of my relationship with others, and kind of the idea of independence has been I've really recognised kind of the, the differences in that now. Like I think I used to think being independent meant you didn't need anyone and you worked on your own and hard, and now mm. I kind of see care as a really beautiful thing, and it kind mm. of can enable people to to be independent in their own ways. And I think, yeah, the beauty of care, I think, is something I've really recognised now. I've, I've become disabled. Um, and I think just kind of the eccentricities of life and kind of disabled life and how complex it is and kind of uh, varied. I think that's been I just feel like I've my whole world has opened to kind of meeting all these different disabled people and how how people communicate in different ways and move in different ways. And yeah, it's been kind of amazing. Who do you care for and who cares for you? So I think, yeah, that's that's another good thing. So I think for your question, because I think for a while I I felt like a real burden um, mm. kind of to my partner because he kind of physically helps me. Like if I fall and fall, fall out of my wheelchair or if I need help transferring something or I need to help mm. reaching something, I felt like uh, I was a real burden. But thinking about what care actually means, emotional care, uh, physical care, kind of there's 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 lots to care and I think that's I think I now realize I actually do care for people I think disabled people have a lot of value to offer and it's not just about uh, kind of working and making money that's not the only 
value that people hold I think it's about kind of emotional care it's about being creative I think um I think when I first was injured I thought I'm now going to be cared for that's my my role is like a passive um, acceptor of care and that's how maybe I thought disabled people were we are passive Mm. static Mm. um, people that need to be fed moved pushed etc and I really yeah that's that's the kind of notion that I've really challenged since you know Mm. in the past couple of years Mm. in terms of how being a wheelchair user has changed you you talk about that moment of strength of realizing your power so so incredible that moment what else has it done for you I think uh, I'm much more patient I think now um, because sometimes I have to wait to do something or I have Mm. to think about it takes me longer or I have to really think about how I can do an activity or something Um, so I think patience has become quite a virtue of mine and I think I have to be patient with people. Um, I I kind of experience microaggressions every day. And I think I've learned to protect myself and choose when I'm going to call someone out or when actually I don't have enough energy, kind of emotionally or physically, to, to do this right now. Mm. So I think that's been really important. And I think protecting myself in terms of setting really clear boundaries of the way I accept to be treated in the way that is unacceptable to me in terms of kind of language or how you talk to me or how you kind of physically move around me or, you know, just how you treat me in general. And I think that's been really important. And that's something I didn't have before my injury. I felt like I was probably taken advantage of a bit more because I, I felt like I needed to please people or I felt like I need to make people happy. And so that's been a really a really big thing for me is I this has forced me to um create boundaries Mm. and what are some of the do's and don'ts the biggest for people in your head I think language is really important you know words like confined to a wheelchair wheelchair bound I just I just hate and so I will call people out if they say that because I think the connotations of those words are really terrible I think in the hospital I'm I'm kind of always uh, women usually are always mistaken for for nurses if they're doctors and nurses do brilliant jobs but it's very frustrating to never be recognized for the role that you're in but I feel like on top of that I also get well I'm always a patient even though I'm in full scrubs lanyards Tesco etc it doesn't matter they see the wheels first um and I've like I've I've been called a chair recently by like a a porter so it's those sort of things are really important and I, I like to kind of shut them down quickly mm. so I hope that that person won't won't do that again so that's other things so I think there's there's more there's kind of bigger things I think intrusive questions I get a lot and I really mm. don't don't accept that especially when it's a phrase like what's wrong with you or what have you done to yourself that's my least favorite one <laughs> um and really huge things like sometimes being pushed without my consent is yes I can imagine I can imagine Mm -hmm. yeah but it's it's lovely actually in a way because my my family and friends and my partner have become really good at picking up on these things too when I when they're around me so I notice when I'm just with my partner or my parents I'll never be talked to that they're always you know even if it's about me they're gonna look at them and they always don't say anything they just point to me and just say talk to her and so it's it's kind of lovely Mm. um feeling like as I'm growing my family and friends are also becoming really great allies. Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Talk to me about spinal crap. <laughs> Best pun ever. 
Thank you. I wish I could take credit for that, but uh, my great friend Ruth actually uh, made up that name. Um, so yeah, I, I think after we I got out of hospital, I, with some other people that were patients at, when I was there and previously, we just got together because we, we felt like there was no resources for now that I'm home. So I right. could do all the practical stuff like showering, getting dressed now, I'd learned that. But I didn't know what it was like to have been a relationship as a disabled person or kind of go to work or go traveling or go on adventures or kind of all these things, day to day things. I didn't understand how I would now do them. So we kind of set it up just just five of us to sort of as a resource, hopefully for people leaving or just in hospital now to, to kind of show them that life is going to get better <laughs> like yeah. you know and, and life is going to be really full and rich again and you're going to have great experiences and we're kind of living them now so mm. um but it was really wonderful uh, opportunity for me because Ruth and I did a did, did a series in lockdown which meant kind of the beauty of it being online was that we could I kind of interview people from Australia America South America and it was amazing to see all these other people with spinal cord injuries doing unbelievable things and that's been really empowering for me too yeah we always ask uh, the question at the end of each conversation about the change that you most want to make for yourself or your world around you moving forwards and I loved your answer which was just like I think I've been through enough change thank you very much (laughs) yes absolutely but what about the world around you is there you know what would you if you could click your fingers and, and make a change what would you do yeah, I think, as I said, yeah, I've done enough change, I think. Um, I think it's time for the world. I think I think I'd really like some more collective action to tackle ableism. It feels like a lot of disabled people are obviously very passionate about it and working towards kind of more accessible futures in terms of kind of physically accessible, but also um, challenging stigma and bias. Um, and I'm so sick of seeing disabled people really poorly represented in the media as kind of kind of victims or people that need care or kind of the butt of the joke. Um, mm. And so I think I would really like able-bodied people to to actually start challenging these issues. And I notice it when I'm with my colleagues, they suddenly realise how inaccessible the environment is. And it would be really great to have people take on that responsibility so it's not just disabled people, you know, trying mm. to fight fight the fight basically yeah grace how long has it been since what do you call it do you call it the accident do you call it the injury i don't i don't i don't want to say that no, label it wrong <laughs> i call it an injury just because injury. i feel like i didn't really accidentally do any i don't know i yeah. find accident yeah. a strange word yeah um so it was t- october 2018 so i right. recently celebrated what the third Third anniversary. anniversary of my injury, which I call my alive day. And I usually treat it a bit like a second birthday, which is lovely. Wow, that is lovely. Yeah. And, you know, your journey in terms of growing older, evolving as a person, evolving as a disabled person and and, and, and kind of enmeshing yourself in this community of people. What do you still hope for? Is, is, there, is there anything that you're still kind of hoping for in the back of your head that you're still thinking about doing, about achieving? Yeah, I think... I think still feeling kind of worthy enough. I think I still struggle with that. Sometimes I feel so confident some days and some days I wake up and I'd still really struggle with that. Um, 
I think I'd actually like to be able to soften myself a bit as well. I think as soon as I started work, I had a defense up. I felt really on edge and I felt like I had to be really wary of people making comments or doing something and that, you know, ready to kind of um, defend myself. So I'd like to be able to feel a bit more comfortable and kind of be able to be open with people without feeling like um, I'm gonna about to get something unacceptable. So uh, yeah, I think I would like to feel a bit more comfortable um, mm. and, and, and soft. And yeah, feeling feeling more worthy. And I mean, practically, uh, I still want to go back to climbing a bit more. Um, yeah, so you have been doing it, right? Yeah, doing yeah. a little bit. We we need to go back. I'd like to kind of go back and, and try. And I think it's going to be upsetting, but I think uh, I right. would like to, you know, see if it's still something I want to do or if I actually that's something that I, I did do and it was great and I can move on to a couple of other things. Yeah, and I guess the only way you can find out is by giving it a go yeah exactly yeah yeah well I wish you the best for the climbing and for the career and everything and it's such a pleasure to have the privilege of hearing your story and I really appreciate you telling it to us today oh, thank, no, you. thank you it was it was such a pleasure to be here thank you Grace Spence Green eh what a woman I'm in awe of her tenacity and her courage in terms of her outlook in adapting to this huge change that she's gone through. I wish her all the luck in the world. I actually sent her a book after we spoke by Sinead Gleeson, a book of essays that she wrote called Constellations. And Sinead Gleeson did an episode of Changes around the release of that book. If you enjoyed this episode, I think you'd really enjoy Sinead. She talks about her own myriad of health problems that she had growing up and she talks about the health system as a whole and how skewed it is against women a lot of the time and uh, yeah I really advise you to go and listen to that that's Sinead Gleeson on Changes hey thanks so much for listening folks this episode was produced by Frank Palmer for DIN Productions and we will be back next week with more Changes When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.